Hi, and welcome to Walk Talk, a podcast courtesy of the Wound, Ostomy, and Continence Nurses Society. Walk Talk is your opportunity to learn more about advocacy, education, and research that support the practice and delivery of expert healthcare to individuals with wound, ostomy, and continence care needs. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast to subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. And now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Emmons. On this special bonus episode of Walk Talk, we sit down with Dr. Janice Bites, who is a professor of nursing and director of the Wound, Ostomy, and Continence Nursing Education Program at the Rutgers School of Nursing, Camden. A native of Philadelphia, Dr. Bites has over 45 years of nursing experience in acute, subacute, and outpatient care settings. As the professional practice expert of the WCN Society's brand new Empowered Program, Dr. Bites has lent her expertise to teaching us how to properly pack our professional practice suitcase with the necessary knowledge, skills, and business acumen needed to excel personally and professionally. To catch up on empowerment webinars and resources you may have missed, please visit wcn.org forward slash empowered. The WCN Empowered Webinar Series, Empowerment Center, and this podcast are all supported by an educational grant from Medela. Dr. Bites, thank you for joining me. I'm delighted to be here, Dr. Evans. It's a treat. We work about three doors down, two doors down from each other. So I'm going to call you Janice, if that's okay. Absolutely. As I plan on calling you, Kevin, it would be sort of crazy to use our titles at this point. Exactly. And I know our listeners, if they don't know, we've been working together for probably 10 years. So it's been a blessing to have this relationship with you. And finally, we get to do a podcast together. I'm really looking forward to this. And so in your presentation, we got great feedback and it just kept getting everyone's wheels moving. And I know it certainly piqued my interest because I think, you know, where am I and where do I need to go? And you clearly showed the need for us to consider these things. But how did you get interested in this area? It was actually my lived experience. I basically come from a strictly blue collar background. There wasn't anybody with a college degree in sight in our family and my parents' generation. And when I got into nursing school, I realized very quickly that if I were going to have the best career opportunities, I needed at least a bachelor's degree. I can remember vividly being overlooked for a promotion to head nurse of neurosurgery. And it was given to somebody with a bachelor's degree who lasted about six months And then they asked me to take it. And by that time, I had gone back to school and I said, no, thank you. But I I said to myself, I'm not going to have this happen again. I'm going to go and increase my education. So bottom line, it's really important to understand that if you want to have a career, you have to start thinking about it early and you have to start planning for it. But I remember that reaction of not getting the position that I wanted when I was working in the perioperative setting. And then once I got into school with my bachelor's degree at LaSalle University in Philadelphia, I sort of got intrigued with some of the classes that we had there focusing on business aspects of healthcare. I said, say what? I've never heard about that because the diploma school that I went to, which was excellent clinically, didn't do a whole bunch on career development. And then when I went to my graduate program at Villanova University, there was a very strong emphasis on career development 
and, you know, how to plan your career trajectory. So it's really been my lived experience. I come from strictly blue collar background, grew up in North Philadelphia. People say, oh, you have a Philadelphia accent. I say, yes, I have to admit to having one, but I'm really glad I can sign my name because I grew up strictly blue collar background. What I was blessed with were a bunch of excellent teachers along the educational path who encouraged me to continue my education. And I think that's true for a lot of people that come from a blue collar background. And I think your career path really is a shining example of maybe why people should care. And so if we have nurses out there who are listening, who may say, I'm married, I'm a parent, nursing is one aspect, why should they care about this professional development? That's a really great question. I have seen in my lived experience as an educator since 1986, but even before that as a practicing full-time clinician, I have seen life circumstances affect nurses, primarily women, because primarily we are still women, although thankfully we're getting more men into the profession. It's really important for both genders to have a career trajectory. Stuff happens. Life happens. I've seen divorce occur. I've seen early premature death occur. I've seen all kinds of issues where women primarily are left in the lurch financially because they have not increased their educational level. And you really don't want to have that happen to you. Particularly, I remember one individual, shall remain nameless, had several children. Her significant other left her with the children, and she was going to not continue her education. And I basically said to her, you really need to continue your education more than ever. You need to empower yourself because you're now running the show in the family. Thankfully, this person went on to specialize in wound care, also got advanced education and relocated her family to another area of the country, all of whom are doing fabulously and she's doing great. I get to see her at conferences and we do high tens because she really, really overcame a really bad family situation, makes very good money, is very happy, has a new significant other, and her children are great. And she did that. She did that by empowering herself, by getting further education. It opened the vista of opportunities. So I was so proud of her realizing, she realized that I am the person who's in charge of the family now. I need to increase my education. And she was a really strong student and has done wonderfully. And after all of these years in education and practice, Janice, I'm sure you have those examples of people who've really taken the bull by the horn and sailed. And then you've seen those examples of those who just maybe were a little laissez-faire or, or didn't care, and that maybe were complaining about being stuck in the rut. So I think your lived experience of probably, I would say you've had thousands of students at this point, Janice. So when you speak on this, it's from that experience. And so I appreciate that. And I know our listeners appreciate that. That being said, WOC nurses are in such a unique role. They straddle so many different aspects in healthcare. They're bedside clinicians. They straddle this administrative They have kind of a clinical research role, a leadership role. And so some may not feel like, oh, business skills are important. Can you explain to us why these business skills are so important for those of us that haven't grasped that idea yet? That's also a great question, too. It's one of those things I've had the lived experience. I've come to realize 
that I needed to have much improved business skills. I was a perioperative clinician about seven years full-time, and then at least three or four years beyond that part-time, and then went into critical care and then wandered into, in the early 90s, into WFC nursing. One of the best choices I ever made because it empowered my ability to work clinically and also to continue working as an educator. But I realized along the path that I really needed to improve my business skills. I've had nurses say to me, I'm a nurse. Why do I have to care about this? I don't work in an office. Time out. You interview for jobs. You need to look the role of an educated, college-educated person. WC nurses have to have at least a bachelor's degree. And sometimes people, particularly those of us who come from blue-collar background, you really need to think about the fact that you are no longer the person you were before your college degree. It's certainly true with your master's, and God knows it's true when you get doctoral-level education. You are a different practitioner, and you're a different person in many respects. So those business skills are critical for interviewing, for searching out jobs, for networking, for doing all the things that you need to do as an educated, college-educated clinician. And Kevin, all the jobs you, all the roles you alluded to in the WFC nursing role, that's even more of a reason why you need to have business skills. When you go into a meeting, for example, in a hospital, like a product evaluation committee or some other kind of root cause analysis committee, something like that, you don't want to go in looking like a slob. That's North Philadelphia term, but it's the truth. You have to go in looking like an educated, thoughtful, cognizing professional, because that's what you are. And your dress should promote that. And your speech should promote that. I can remember vividly working at a hospital in North Philly when I was getting my bachelor's degree with one of the nurses on the unit who was just a top-notch clinician. And she was talking to one of the pulmonologists and she said, yes, I wanted to talk to you about them things. I looked at the guy's face and I thought, he just totally negated everything she's going to say to him. And yes, she was right. She was a really good, observant, caring clinician, but her poor Philadelphia, poor English really hurt her. And that's part of business skills, to have good speech, to look good, to express yourself well. And nobody's born knowing that. God knows if you grow up in North Philadelphia, you have to learn how to speak in a better way. You can listen to people and you can watch TV and you can watch the internet. You can listen to people and think, that's how I want to sound. I want to be clear in how I express myself. So business skills, and that's just one component. I could get in talking about statistical analysis and how you have to keep track of your patients. Dr. Michael Gray, the editor of our journal, says, in God we trust, everybody else bring data. Well, if you go into your boss's office and you don't have data to support the request that you're making, that's a problem. And that's a business skill that all WFC nurses need to have. Taking someone seriously is a huge aspect of that professionalism. You know the people on your units and the people around you that you respect, and usually they carry themselves a certain way. And if you're going into the C-suite and you're trying to convince them you need this product or hire this amount of people, and you go in, again, looking like a schlub or a a slob, it's not going to help your cause. It's absolutely. And we're interacting with professionals sometimes who have higher education than we do, our physician colleagues, many of whom are very collaborative, easy to work with. I will tell you, I have much better physician relationships 
the higher level of education, every level I went higher, my interactions with physician and other professional colleagues became much easier. Having said that, that doesn't affect how you are able to work with people. WFC nurses really have to work with the full gamut of interprofessional personnel, and particularly in the area of wound care and legal issues. I could talk for hours about that. But when we know that there's a problem, for example, we have to sometimes put on our battle armor and go into meetings with other people and say, wait a second, folks, we all have to be on the same page, for example, in documenting hospital-acquired pressure injuries. We can't be using wildly different scales, that kind of thing. And sometimes that's hard for a younger WOC nurse and even sometimes experienced people to go into a meeting like that. Instead of, I put mentally, I put a crown on and a cape and I go into the meeting and I'm ready to talk to individuals and say, listen, folks, this is the deal. This is what happens. You need to make this happen. And I'll talk to medical directors. I'll talk to risk managers, hospital counsel. I don't care because I know what I'm talking about is correct. And people trust you for that. You know, again, I've worked with you for a long time, but I've seen you interact with newer people and they trust you because you have that confidence in the knowledge that you have and you hold yourself as a professional. And that, that stands for something that, that gives you clear ability to communicate and to be trusted. Right? So when we see you speak at conference, we trust you because you know the information. Well, I think that's part and parcel of being someone who's in the role that I am right now in my career trajectory. I have to keep myself current with what's going on with professional associations and the research literature and things like that, but also legal implications because all of that impacts our care. And the fact of the matter is, this is not something you acquire overnight. It builds on itself over years, five years, 10 years, 30 years. And I'm going to talk about that much more in the second webinar about certifications. I have very clear thoughts about board certification, and I'm going to share that in the upcoming webinar. But that's part and parcel of professional development. You got to put that in your suitcase and take it with you. And if you look at my credentials, I have a lot of certifications. I got them and I've kept them because it's important to show my expertise in these areas. Right. And we look forward to that second one that will be coming out. So you'll keep us excited and enthralled with that, I'm sure. It's worth our time. That's the bottom line. And reflecting back, it's been a lot of work. As I laugh, I tell people when they complain about being in night school, I said, night school, I did it for 18 years of night school, (laughs) getting my bachelor's, master's, and PhD. But I have never been bored, ever. It's always fascinating to see the new information I'm learning. I think that's why I've enjoyed nursing so much and nursing education and WC nursing, because there's always something new. Right. If you can't be happy in nursing and WC nursing, you're not trying because there's a place for everyone. I agree with that. In your talk, you spoke about structured supports for career planning. Can you expand on that a little bit? What should nurses be looking for with structured support? Yeah, structured support. It was related to a study that was done in Australia and how nurse educators, you know, progress through their career trajectory. One of the things that's very helpful to have is a mentor. And we can talk about that in a little bit. I have had several mentors. I had a clinical mentor who became a WFC nurse around the time I did, but was in a much more high acuity environment. So we worked together at another setting and she mentored me clinically magnificently. And she 
when we opened the WOC program at Rutgers, she's involved with the program because she's such a good clinician. I also have had a research mentor. I met when I was getting my baccalaureate education, who said to me, you're going to be a nurse researcher. And I said, ah, you're crazy. But indeed, I went on to be a nurse researcher. And it's really fascinating when you do a research study and the findings start to emerge. It is really interesting. I'm never bored. There's always something new to learn. And then I had a nurse educator mentor, Dr. Terry Baliga, that I met at Villanova, who she's now Professor Emeritus out of Duke University, magnificent educator. I used to go to class. It was like a religious experience to be in classes with this woman. And she's a role model for me as an educator. She's into active learning. She's funny. She'll tell people, you know, try to innovate. If it bombs, it bombs. Something else you try. But don't be intimidated by failure. I thought that was great. Another big structured support is money. There's nothing to help you like having available money. One of the things that strikes me is that nurses, sometimes WC nurses, aren't aware that there's this thing called tuition remission or tuition support. You can choose to work in a lot of places, but I purposely chose to work at places that gave me tuition support. So I have paid very little money for my education. For my bachelor's degree, I was working as an RN at a hospital that did tuition remission. My bachelor's was paid. My master's degree, I walked into a federal grant that put me halfway through the grad school process. The other half of grad school was covered by my working as a research assistant, as a graduate student. I paid $600 for my graduate degree, which is amazing. And then my PhD, I was working at an organization where I got the classes free. So I ended up paying $2,000 for my PhD. So the bottom line is I chose to work at places that would give me tuition support. And there is no reason that any WC nurse out there can't do the same. You know, that's part and parcel. Of course, you're going to be working full time and going to school part time. And that's okay. And that's part and parcel of advancing your career. Prioritizing, right? And so that's a, most people don't want to be stuck in the same place. So they need to start writing those things down that are important to them to get to that next level. And you know, Kevin, your comment about writing it down is absolutely spot on. The bottom line is you have to own your career trajectory and you also have to monitor it. And if you don't write down what your thoughts and goals are and then keep track of it, I mean, literally, visually, I've had stuff out on a whiteboard thinking about what am I going to do now, 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 and then thinking, what's my five-year plan, 10-year plan? And we're all getting older. As I said in the webinar, your body is aging. And, you know, our colleague, Joe Catanzaro, says you don't want to be running around the ICU when you're 65. And she did, she did critical care nursing for decades. Bottom line is you have to prepare for a role with an aging body. So how are you going to do that? How are you going to set it up to be successful with the fact that you know you're aging? And, you know, for me, I'm a couple of years from retirement. So I'm starting to say to myself, I can't retire fully. I'll be bored out of my mind. So I have to figure out what I want to do when I retire from full-time teaching, but I still want to be involved some way in education and also in other scholarly endeavors. Well, we're not letting you go. I don't know <laughs> if you know that. <laughs> I'm not approving that. So as you mentioned, mentoring, and that is a big theme in your presentation, and it really should be a big theme in all of our lives. 
Let's talk about how to find a mentor, but something that you said really struck me. And most people probably don't realize this. You gave examples of numerous mentors. So it's not just finding a mentor, it's finding mentors in those areas. So how do we find them? And what are the types of mentors we're looking for? They're really good questions. I think you can find a mentor in a lot of ways. It doesn't have to be one mentor. It really could be a mentor that's pertinent for that area of your career trajectory, that moment of your career trajectory. I mentioned about clinically, I had a clinical mentor, but I also earlier in my career had mentors as well. I can remember working in a CCU earlier before, I think I'd just gotten my bachelor's degree at that time. And there was a clinician that I got to know in my baccalaureate program. She was top notch. I never saw anybody run a code like this woman did. She was just superb. She knew cardiac care like the back of her hand. She could read all kinds of crazy cardiac rhythm strips, pick up subtleties. She was just top notch. So I role modeled this woman when I was working in CCU. I thought I want to be like her when I grow up as a cardiac care clinician, critical care nurse. So I think that that's one thing you can do. As a WOC nurse, I mentioned earlier, one of our colleagues, I role modeled her. I role modeled her documentation because it was so good. Still do. We talk about things and try to educate students to do that, but also try to do that when we are working ourselves. I was just involved last year with setting up an electronic medical record for the WOC nurses that was pre-populating a lot of things so that nurses didn't have to waste their time because time is money documenting stuff that was already in the chart and then had areas where they just had to fill in things because like for wounds, there are certain things that have to be documented by wounds. So doing that kind of stuff, I was able to take documentation understanding to an electronic format. And that was really a lot of fun to think about that. I think one of the best ways to find a mentor is to go back to school. You know, I went to a diploma program because I could not afford to go to a college, even though my high school counselors begged me to go to a baccalaureate nursing program. Forget about it. My father was not for education for women. I'm glad to say he came full circle and said to my children, don't be a dope like me. Go to school like your mother and your aunt. And my sister is a retired nurse anesthetist. So she went back to school. So our kids were doing homework while we were doing homework. That's role modeling for your children. So my older son has a JD, he's a lawyer, and my younger son has a master's in public administration. Why? Because we all did homework together. I'm really convinced of that. You know, that's part of the home life role model. But I met wonderful mentors in my educational programs. And I had, you know, a tremendous mentor in doctoral study, the gentleman who taught me stats. I had him for five, count them, five doctoral PhD statistics courses. I came to love statistics because of this gentleman. He's a fabulous teacher. And that's the kind of role modeling and mentoring that you can get going through educational levels. And the friendships you develop last for decades. Yeah. I know one of your old colleagues was one of my biggest mentors, Dr. Kathy Frame, who you live near and she was a nursing professor. And I was a undergrad 20 years ago. And she was like, you know, you're going to be a nursing professor. I'm like, Dr. Frame, I don't even think I'm going to pass nursing school, but with her mentorship, you know, she helped me blossom into the educator that I am today. And I I wouldn't be the same person without a mentor. And I know you probably feel the same way. It's absolutely true. Your mentors leave indelible impact on you. And 
it's always for the better because you sit there and you watch the really fabulous activities or whatever they are that the mentor is doing. And they usually give you sound advice. Half of it is sound advice and networking advice. I had a wonderful physician mentor in terms of professional associations who's passed on now, wonderful gentleman. He was chief of surgery at a a Philadelphia hospital. And he said, you need to get involved in this association. We need to have doctoral educated nurses on our board. So I did. And I was on their national board for two cycles. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Got to work with all kinds of disciplines about wound care. And that was mentoring from somebody who wasn't even a nurse who encouraged me to do that. So you just have to be able to be open to the opportunities that arise. Let's flip it. How about being the mentor and professional development? Yeah, you know, if you are along in your career trajectory and you have the opportunity to be a mentor, jump at it, embrace it. But you have to set parameters for your mentee. I have had a very good mentoring experience. I'm having one right now with a mentee who is just fabulous. She does everything I suggest. It's just a joy. And then I've had another mentoring experience that wasn't as great. Not listening, pushback, that kind of stuff. So that kind of gets frustrating. But when you are the mentor, you really get a sense of accomplishment when you see your person achieve. I've just had an experience recently in mentoring somebody through a PhD. And looking at this dissertation develop was just such a treat. It's a fabulous topic, beautifully written. It's going to be publishable, highly publishable, two or three articles. And of course, I'm pushing this person now. You got to get this into the literature because it's so good. Bottom line, it's in a needed area. And as her mentor, I've also suggested her as a guest speaker at a large interprofessional meeting for next year. Because the topic of veterans care is a really important thing. And mentoring her through that process, it was an honor to be on her committee. Watching this study go was a phenomenology. It was really fascinating. So mentoring is a tremendous opportunity to give to another person, to give to the profession. I saw it as a way of promoting nursing education. But we also had fun because we would meet every week at a diner. And think out loud, which is what you do as a phenomenologist. You think out loud and you talk about the findings. And in the conversation, you are developing deeper insights into what this phenomenon is. It was just a blast. All of spring, I was energized in working with this mentee. And I look forward to working with her. I love working with mentees that tune in and listen. It's just a blast. You were talking about, you know, phenomenology and the research, but really that's mentoring in general, right? Of having that open conversation and saying, let's talk about it. You know, these are my experiences. This is what you're experiencing. Take this information and and learn from either my mistakes or my successes. And that's the truth. And one of the things you have to do as a mentor is realize that your mentee is going to, at some point, take off and fly and not need you anymore. And that's okay. Or if they don't need you hardly at all, but they want to tap back in and talk to you once in a while. Like one of my mentors saw that the School of Nursing had become a center of excellence for NLN. She called or she emailed me and congratulated me in the school. She was thrilled to see that. And, you know, she recognized that we're a relatively new organization and she was just so happy for us. And it was just great to hear from her. So that's the kind of thing, your mentoring relationship 
it's really a long-term thing. It's a friendship. If mentoring is working right, if the mentor-mentee relationship is working in a positive way, it turns out being a lifelong friendship. Yeah. You don't want it to be extra work, right? Like mental work, but uh, yeah. that friendship really can bless it Energizing. I was doing a research study myself, actually, too, this spring, and working with the mentee, I would be so charged up with the new findings and the new insights. I would go home and do work on my own research study. And I was really engaged with it because of working with the mentee. And so now let's transition into, you know, you're thinking about your professional development and maybe you know you need to move on to the next step, whether that's in the same organization, a new organization, maybe a completely different role than, than you've had before. You go from clinician to full-time educator or, or delving into something. When you are trying to put together work samples, can you describe what that is? Because some people don't really harness that in kind of moving forward their career. That's a great question. One of the things you have to understand is when you go in, particularly for an interview, what you submit reflects your self-image. So the first work sample that you really want to look tip top is your resume. And there's no reason to have a bad resume in 2021. You can go onto the internet and they must have a hundred resume sites that you can access. In Word, Microsoft Word, there are templates to how to make your resume look fabulous. So you're saying it shouldn't be on a typewriter, Janice? Is that oh, no. <laughs> on a computer. It should not be crazy. Now, one of my colleagues was a VP of nursing at a hospital in Philadelphia, and she was crying with laughter. Somebody sent an, a resume in. It was on purple, passion purple paper with the person's picture going ah, at the top. It was hilarious. It was just hilarious. Of course, the person did not get hired, but it was an example of what not to do with your resume. What I'm talking about here is correct spelling and correct format and a nice quality paper and good quality print. It matters. If you hand in a dog-eared, misspelled, light print, cheesy looking resume, that's not going to be in your favor. And there's no reason to have a bad resume with all of the resources that we have available. And if you're not that great on a computer, go to your community library and see the computer classes that they have, because just about every library has classes on computers. They just do. Or you ask your kids. I've always asked my sons because they were better on computers than I was, and they've been a support to me, thankfully. The other thing with work samples is, particularly for WOC nurses, we are doing scathingly brilliant work, and we seldom take credit for it. If you are involved with the development of a pressure injury prevention education program, if you are involved with some kind of, you know, committee process that's developing things, anything that you develop, you should keep digital copies of so that at some point in the future, you can share with a possible future employer what brilliant things you have done. You need to keep really good stats on the type of patient care that you've provided. You know, if you've seen, I don't know, 400 ostomy patients in a year, that's a lot of exposure to ostomy patients. So the person who may be hiring you at another organization needs to know how active you've been in the care that you provide. 
And if you have something that you've done for school that has interacted with your work, absolutely take it along as a work sample. I can tell you positive outcomes from our WFC program. As you know, we have papers that students are required to write. Several of our students have taken papers that they have written for the program, worked on them a little bit after graduation, and got them published. Publication really counts. It takes you to a different level. One of my former students from the New York area told me she got hired in preference to somebody with more experience because she had published her work. That, to me, is a work sample. When she interviewed, she took the publication, gave it to the people. They were impressed. She also had a resume that was the bomb, and she also knew how to express herself, and she looked fabulous. That's the kind of thing you want to do in going into an interview. These work samples, these cognitive outcomes that you have interacted with in terms of developing programs, writing, presentations you may have done, all that stuff, you take examples with you to show the work that you're capable of. And any managers out there that may be listening, there's like keywords that really point into what you were saying. And, and we're told to have competency-based interviews. And those work samples show your competencies. They show what you have done. And so no more are we just saying, oh, what have you done? It's show me the money. Actually show me what you have done. And I, when I was in my doctoral studies, the chair there made us put together a book and I still have it. And it has everything that I created in my jobs and in school that was relevant. I created patient education pamphlets, put those in, created electronic health record algorithms or clinical decision-making, put that in. So that's competency-based and really are reflective of those work samples. And it did get me jobs because I was able to physically show outcomes. Absolutely. If I were interviewing elsewhere, I would have a portfolio of publications, of coursework that I had done, research work that I had done. And that's really all at the end of the day, that is all work samples. We're not allowing that to happen, Janice. <laughs> but if I were, but if I were working, like if I were going to do, for example, if I wanted to do consulting, I would take examples of the clinical work that I had done in terms of research and publications and also work that I had helped generate at previous consultant activities. So it's all work samples and people that want to hire you want to see what you can do. And I, I, you know, I like that. Show me the money. It is, it is, they want to see what you can do because lip service is one thing. Output is quite another. So to wrap it up, I have one more question for you and One of your slides really made me think about this because a lot of people stumble on this aspect. And it's when interviewing, many people are asked, what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? Most of us can talk about our strengths, but how do you talk about your weaknesses? That's a great question. You have to think about that's part and parcel of getting ready for an interview because you can anticipate that as being a question. It is easier to talk about your strengths. Of course, it's harder to talk about your weaknesses, but we all have them. Bottom line is you have to be honest with the interviewer and with yourself. And everybody has weaknesses. You can't say, oh, I'm perfect. I don't have any. (laughs) That'll lose you the job, guaranteed. But you also have to reflect on 
what your weaknesses are and share them in a positive way that you're aware that you have what I would call, what Dan Goleman would call emotional intelligence, even about yourself. And because emotional intelligence is based on self-reflection. You know, as I get older and I'm getting faster at doing things, sometimes I may be impatient with some things not happening fast enough. I mean, the positive side is I can whip stuff out very quickly. The bad side of things is that sometimes I get impatient with the slowness of processes. And that's part and parcel of being in a big bureaucracy, like a big university. You wish things would happen faster, but they don't. Bottom line is that's the kind of comment you can talk about yourself. You know, I'm used to ripping along. Sometimes I really have to put the brakes on and just calm down and understand that things take time. Other than that, I think the bottom line is you have to be honest. You have to be honest with yourself. You have to be honest with the interviewer. And that kind of thing you can really plan for. I do a positive negative. What's good about my performance as a WOC nurse? What are areas as a WOC nurse that I need to improve on? And that's one of the things I can remember doing earlier in my career when I went back to school. I can remember being in a graduate pharmacology class and finally understanding the pharmacology patterns I was seeing in patient care. It was like a religious experience. It's like, why are all these diabetic patients on metformin? Well, after lifestyle changes, just about every kind of algorithm for diabetic care starts with the use of metformin, as long as your kidneys are okay. Bottom line is there are reasons why people have the pharmacology patterns they have. That was part and parcel of developing myself. That was a reflection of, I need to learn more about drug therapy and have never regretted going on to higher education. It just, you know, I was a clinical nurse specialist for a couple of decades and then went back to school on a sabbatical time to become a nurse practitioner. One of the best things I ever did for myself. Thoroughly enjoy it. Great. And, you know, those are all excellent hints and discussion on why we need professional development. I don't think any of us want to stay stagnant and want to be in a rut. If we ever feel like that, it's time to really be thinking about where we're at in our career and where we need to go. And so this is one of those examples of a presentation that helps us to move forward. And I appreciate that. So the WCN, the society in and of itself, is concerned with our practice, but they're concerned with us as professionals. And these are the types of learning webinars and podcasts that help to grow us. And so you have another one coming up. So we'll definitely be looking out for that, Janice. Yeah, I think that's mid-September is the next webinar. Excellent. Is there anything else you want to wrap up before we end? Just want to make a comment that sometimes this can seem overwhelming to someone, particularly if you come from a blue-collar background. You can't envision yourself decades out at a different level with higher education. The fact of the matter is one of the biggest things that can hold you back is your own fear. And you have to conquer that. And you will find yourself as you get each educational level achieved, that it makes it easier for you to go to the next level and to the next level. And bottom line is it's almost like an imposter phenomenon. And it's funny, the person who we've, I've just mentored with the PhD Somebody called her doctor by her last name. And she was like, who's that? <laughs> I said, you are. Bottom line is that fear has to be overcome. And the people that I've met in my career who are cranky about nursing are people who haven't done much to improve their career trajectory. And you don't want to be cranky when you're older 
and unhappy in your WOC role. So you want to position yourself to be in a good spot. That is with national board certifications and higher level education. Remember, if you have higher level education, it can empower you to the point where you have prescriptive privileges and can charge for your wonderful WOC services. That is empowerment. That's why I went back to school to become an NP. I wanted to be able to build and to write prescriptions. Yep, that's excellent advice. And you know, I know I appreciate you as a mentor. And we finally got to sit down on a podcast and talk together. And so I appreciate you, Janice, and your time. I am delighted to be asked to do this. It's actually wonderful to talk to you, Kevin. We're usually running so fast. We're saying, hello, let's meet five minutes and then we're on to the next, you know, next job. Bottom line is, I think this is a great activity and I really thank the WCN Society for getting this process going. I look forward to the next webinar and the next podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Walk Talk. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast for additional details about this topic and the speakers. You can also get more information about subscribing to this podcast so you never miss an episode and to get the latest news and information from the WOCN Society. Again, that's wocn.org slash podcast. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Walk Talk. Walk Talk.